0: So in Acts chapter 19, it's on page 1100, if you're using a pew Bible, page 1100, and we're looking at verses 23 to 41. Let me read the passage, Acts chapter 19, verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our gods. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. And there were proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So one of my traffic pet peeves is when people... Who are driving their cars who have right-of-way stop their car in order to wave people out who don't have right-of-way. It drives me crazy. Many years ago, I was driving uh, down a road uh, near here, and it was a 40-mile-an-hour road, and I came to a place where I was going to take a left-hand turn, and there was a car oncoming, and so I, I stopped my car and signaled because I didn't have right-of-way, and I was going to let the other car go. And the, the other car happened to be in the skidroom by a woman, but men do this too. Everyone does this, it seems. This other car stopped so that I could take a left. There was no one behind this other car. If this other car had just kept going for like one more second, I could have then taken my left because I didn't have right-of-way. And so this person stopped, and... She smiled at me, and and you know what she did, right? She went, right? And and for whatever reason that day, I don't know if I was in a bad mood. I don't know if I just hadn't read my Bible and prayed enough that morning. I don't know if I just wasn't feeling very pastoral, but I had enough and I snapped. And I'm like, that's it. Someone has got to stand against this madness. (laughs) So I was like, you know what? I'm not going. So I just looked back at her and I smiled and I was like, "No, you go ahead." So she looked at me and she's like, eh, "No, you go." And I was like, "No, you go." And now she's starting to get confused. You know, she's I, I could just see her wheels turning like, "I stopped. I'm waving my hand. Why aren't you obeying me?" And she's like, "No, you go." And I was just like, "No. I'm not going." And so she finally accelerated, and as she drove past, I kind of looked over at her. And uh, do, do you kids here, I don't know, kids, I don't know what cartoons you guys watched today. Do you guys ever watch the old Bugs Bunny cartoons? They're the best, all right. As far as, yes, thank you. Aaron Knight, yes, you and I watch Bugs Bunny still. Do you remember from Bugs Bunny, the Tasmanian Devil? That's who was in the car as she drove by. It's like, like she was gesturing and mad, and you know, the teeth were bared, and the eyes were wide, and I couldn't hear her, but it was like... You know, and in like 10 seconds, she had transformed from the, the, the kind traffic fairy of Norwell to the wicked witch of the West. And it was really amazing. You, you know, we're all, we're all nice people and we're all decent people, but it's amazing how quickly our civility can evaporate if people start to mess with us in ways we don't like. You know, we're, we're all nice, everyone's nice. You're a nice person, so am I. But if you start messing with my stuff, or my life, or you open your car door in the parking lot and it bangs into mine and I'm in the car, and all of a sudden, we get angry. Um, If you mess with my time or my schedule, especially, and I'm on a clock, or or you mess with, you know, I I do something for you and I don't feel like you've appreciated it enough, all of a sudden, all this nicey-nice just goes out the window and suddenly we're angry or we're saying, I'm going to sue you or you're going to punch somebody out. It's, It's incredible how quickly we escalate to those places. People escalate there very quickly. It happens to us sometimes. Our civility and our kindness is often just very tissue thin. It doesn't take much to break that. And that's important for us to know as Christians, especially as we think about telling other people about Jesus, telling them the good news about Jesus. Because here's the thing about the gospel of Jesus is that it messes with our lives. Alright? It's good news it's really good news. It's the best news that, that there is to know that there is a Savior sent from heaven to forgive and save sinners like us. And so that's good news, but it also confronts. It confronts us and says, you need a Savior, that, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And good news is he's here, but you need him. And, and we don't like our lives being messed with in that way. And so as the gospel comes to bear upon us, yes, it brings grace, but it also brings truth. And often there's a reaction. Often we turn into that Tasmanian devil. We become angry at at our lives being intruded upon. Well, here we are in the Book of Acts, chapter 19, and uh, there is this riot in Ephesus. And this story is really a case study. Of what it looks like in the city of Ephesus, when the gospel has intruded and the gospel has come into the city, and, and suddenly some of the things they hold dear, in this case, the worship of Artemis, this goddess, has now been impinged upon by the gospel, and there's a reaction to it as the gospel messes with that. And so the story comes in two parts. there's Demetrius's speech to the craftsman, where he explains the problem and then there 's the riot in the um, uh, the theater there, the amphitheater and, and this crazy this, this confusion that takes place and in each of these story, each of these parts of the story, they, they reveal to us what it looks like when our sinful, idolatrous hearts are confronted and exposed for what they are, and the reaction that comes as a result of that because of the gospel of Jesus. Don't be surprised by hostile, angry reactions to the gospel. Don't be surprised when when idols are confronted that people who worship idols don't like that. That's normal. It's the way we work. It's how we are as people. So let's look at this story in those two parts. The first scene is Demetrius speaking to his fellow craftsmen. And here I think particularly what's exposed is not just the idolatry of, these, of the people of Ephesus, but, but I would say the irrationality of their idolatry. That, that The fact that worshiping idols is irrational is highlighted through this story. Okay, so look at the story. It says in verse 23, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way... That's what they used to call Christianity, the way. Named after Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. So the the goddess in question here is Artemis. Uh, You may know her from your your studies in um, ancient cultures as Diana. That's what the Romans called her. Uh, She was the goddess of the moon and the goddess of the hunt and the goddess of childbirth and the goddess of death. And she was, of of the different gods that were worshipped in the Greco-Roman pantheon, at this time, she was one of the most popular ones. She was kind of an A-list god. Uh, Lots of people worshipped Artemis. Uh, And of all the places to worship Artemis, Ephesus was the number one place, Right. It, it was the center of Artemis worship in the ancient world. So for that reason, it's very popular. Um, archaeologists and historians uh, tell us that the temple to Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was massive. It was uh, you know 400 feet long plus, so longer than a football field. And it was over 200 feet wide, so wider than a football field. I mean, huge space. The columns that held up the, the roof were... Uh, we're told we 60 feet high. It was an enormous building, the biggest building in the ancient world. Uh, and so, so if you wanted to worship Artemis, the place to go was to Ephesus. There was a week-long festival every year called Artemisian where people would come from all over the world and there'd be games and carnival and, you know, theater and all kinds of things on display. So when Demetrius is speaking to these fellow craftsmen here, he's concerned that the most popular God in the center of Artemis worship for the Roman world is under assault. That because Paul is preaching the gospel, that people are turning away from Artemis. That, that somehow he's diminishing the worship of Artemis. So, so this is not just about the money that Demetrius is losing in his silver craftsman trade. So what he would do is he would make little silver shrines, and when pilgrims would come to see Artemis, they would sell these. Then people would take those home, and they would put that on their little shelf of gods, and that would be part of their worship of Artemis. And uh, archaeologists have found these little shrines, not silver ones, but marble ones, and some made of terracotta. And and so this was sort of common practice back then. So Demetrius made money that way. So Demetrius was losing money, but more than money, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen, their identity was caught up in the worship of Artemis. This is who they were. They were the guys who stood with Artemis. They were loyalists to Artemis. And so for them, this was striking at the very core, not only of their livelihood, but of their life and their identity, who they were. And so Demetrius says, Look, this Paul is preaching, and it's hurting our worship. And that's when the I do, the uh, irrationality of idolatry comes out. There's a lot of irony in this passage, right I mean, look, look at what Demetrius says, verse 26. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people in, the, in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Get this. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. How dare he say that man-made gods are no gods at all? You stop and you go, "Wait a minute. Do you hear the words that are coming out of your mouth? Man-made gods are no gods at all. That, that seems a pretty rational thing to say to me, right? If I make a god out of my hands and I make a statue and then I cover it with gold or silver and then I give it to you and I say, that's a god, worship it, it seems logical that that's not a god. I mean, even if you're here this morning, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ yet, maybe you're agnostic, you don't know what you believe, you're kind of questioning and searching. Okay, Fine. Say for a moment, let's just say for the sake of argument, there is such a thing as God or there are gods, right? So for the sake of argument, if that's true, by definition, those gods must be powerful beings. I mean, that's part of what it means to be a god. They have to at least be as as powerful as the Avengers, okay? (laughs) Probably more than the Avengers if they're really gods, all right? So, so, so if that's what a god is, by definition, to be a god, you have to be some kind of superhuman thing or greater. So isn't it logical to think that making a statue and putting it down and worshiping that thing isn't a god? I mean, it just seems like eminently reasonable thing to say. But in our idolatry, in our sinfulness, we become irrational. Sin is irrational when you know the truth, if we truly knew who God was and everything that was true about him, all sin would seem irrational because it is irrational. And so suddenly his irrationality of this God is being, is being unmasked. It's put on display. Or look at this other statement that's just so irrational. He says, look at the end of verse 27. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshiped throughout the province of asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty how how could paul rob a god of divine majesty if there really is a god how could a god be robbed i mean it would be easier to rob the president of the united states of one of his ties from the white house you could do that more easily than you could rob a god of its majesty. If it's a god, how would I even go about that? And so it's like, why, why do you feel you have to protect this goddess so much? If this is a goddess, if she's the goddess of death or the hunt, she's probably able to handle herself just fine, thank you, without you, Artem, uh, Demetrius. So, so why, why are you so defensive of her? And so, so the irrationality and the irony... Of idol worship is on full display even as he rouses the other craftsmen his own words betray the silliness of of idolatry and all and how did paul do it all paul did was he just preached the gospel that's what i love about the story artemis worship is falling down the artemis is in the poles is going down and, and what did paul do to accomplish that Did he start a big anti-Artemis campaign? Was he putting up posters around Ephesus? Did he start his own little guild of silver Jesuses that are outselling the Artemis, you know, the Jesuses? Did he say, we're going to make a bigger temple? It's going to be 500 feet long and three, you know. No, he just sat in the lecture hall of Tyrannus for two years, as we saw last Sunday, and he talked. That's all he did was just move his lips. He talked about Jesus, he explained about Jesus, people asked him questions about Jesus, he explained more, and simply talking was bringing down the worship of the great goddess Artemis, who couldn't even defend herself against this little Paul speaking. Uh, it, It reminds me of that scene in the movie The Wizard of Oz, probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie, where Dorothy and... And the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion are all standing in front of the Great and Powerful Oz, and he's like, I am the Great and Powerful Oz. And they're like, all right. And do you remember the scene, Toto gets loose? Thank goodness for little terriers, that's what i got to say. And uh, the little terrier runs over, grabs hold of the curtain, and pulls the curtain back. And then you realize that the Great and Powerful Oz is actually just some dude who built a machine, and he's over there like levers and dials, and he sees that they see him, and he says into a microphone, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, <laughs> and Oz says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, and all of a sudden, it's, it's all shown to be a hoax, but there really is no great and powerful Oz, and, and so Paul is like Toto, Paul simply comes along and starts telling them the gospel, he says, look, there is a God, it's not that statue, it's not any statue. How could it be a statue? It's, he's God. He made this whole world. He's an awesome God. And, and by worshiping statues and by doing things our own way, we're sinning against that God. We've, we've rejected that God's authority over our lives, and we're under judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that that same God sent his own son, Jesus, to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven and to rise again so that our lives could be transformed, and and that if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you don't have to buy a silver temple. You don't have to go to the big building. You just have to trust in Christ. You can be forgiven. You you know, Paul, Paul just was showing up saying, you guys need a savior, and the statue isn't it. And through that simple message, just pulling back the curtain, everything is coming down around them, because idolatry is irrational. And don't think that just because you and I today don't have a statue of Artemis in our house, that our hearts are not still capable of idolatry. To, to be idolatrous, you don't actually have to have a statue. It, it's, more, it's as much a function of the heart and the soul. I, idolatry is, is when we take anything in the world that may be a good thing in and of itself, and we begin to ascribe it a kind of ultimacy. We we begin to look at it as as our life and at our hope and and our identity when we begin to treasure it above anything else. And when that happens, good, normal things become idols. John Calvin, uh, the uh, Reformation theologian, famously said that the human heart is the greatest idol factory in the world, we, we just make idols and, and we grab on to things and, and we take good things and we elevate them and they become what we live for and who we are and it's in our identity and our meaning and our purpose in things that we're never meant to sustain that. And it's irrational. You know, it's irrational to make money your idol and to put your hope and trust in money. Like, we know that. Step back, think about money. It comes and it goes. We've made it, we've lost it, right? Y- you make it then you die, and then you leave it to people who didn't earn it, and they blow it, right? It's just, it, it's, you know, money, and money, it's not, not, we need money, you've got to work, and you have to earn money, but if that's what your life is about, I mean, we all know people who've made a lot of money and are totally miserable, and their lives have fallen apart, and they're very broken, because we know that money isn't the purpose of it, and yet in our irrationality of our idolatry, idolatry, we, we live the opposite way, we know it's irrational to think that um, uh, that another person could make us happy. We step back, and we say, of course, everyone, no one's perfect. People are, we, as Christians say, people are sinful. And so anytime you're in a relationship with a person, you're, you're a sinful person in a relationship with another sinful person. It's not going to completely fulfill you. No relationship can. And yet... We, we put people on pedestals and we idolize people and we want their approval or we think if I just had that person as my spouse or I just had this or that, then I would be happy. And it's irrational. No person can fulfill that. We, we take a good thing, which is a relationship, and we turn it into an ultimate thing and it disappoints us profoundly and people disappoint us profoundly because no human being can bear the weight of deification <laughs> because... It's an idol. People become idols. It's it is uh, it is irrational to think that finding your happiness in staring at at pornography or in shopping or in anything like that is okay, or that it won't harm you, or that it won't ruin you, or or, or be bad for your soul in some way. It's irrational to make our children into idols. And sometimes we do that as parents, as your parents here. We take our children and, and our children are awesome. They're wonderful gifts from God. But sometimes we as parents put them on the pedestal and, and sort of give them a kind of ultimacy so that our whole lives is are about making sure our children do well and we wrap up our identities in our children and, and if our children are doing poorly, we feel threatened and we, we act out in different kinds of ways. Um sports are an idol. In, in many ways, we, we live, I, I think it's an, a South Shore idol and sports, you know, kids sports, you know, getting our kids in sports. You, you know, one of the, the things I've seen that I think is really troubling is, is how much kids sports have grown and grown so that even on Sunday mornings, you know, people have their kids in baseball or hockey or lacrosse. And, and, and so your, your kids are, aren't worshiping with you in church for like three months or four months or five months out of the year. And you think that's okay for your kids? Like that's, that's ruining their souls. That's bad for their souls to not see mom and dad worshiping God. You're sending them a message about what is ultimate by how you spend your time as a family and what you do. Your kids need to worship Jesus. That's good for them. They're not going to become professional athletes. But they could become followers of Christ. So we need to put things that are ultimate or, or rather, we shouldn't put things that aren't ultimate. Ultimate, Christ alone, is worthy of our worship. And all these idolatrous things, they bring us down and they ruin us. What is an idol? It's anything that we treasure more than Jesus Christ. An idol is anything that I treasure more than Jesus Christ. Think back on your week, This last week. What are the idols that were tempting you? What, what had a pull upon you? Was it was it a thing or a person? Maybe maybe it's just control. Control is your idol. You just like to control things. Or you know what is it that had a pull on you this week? What was consuming your time and your energy? And and, and if there is something that was disproportionate and something you were really leaning into for happiness or meaning or safety or identity, perhaps there's an idol there that needs to be broken. And this is a discipline even for Christians, right? We as Christians can still go back to our old idols. That's why the uh, Apostle John in his epistle ends the epistle by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols because we're still prone to idolatry in so many ways. And so the gospel comes along and it puts its finger on our idols and says, no, that's not a God. No, that can't save you. No, that's not what your life is about. That's an idol. And, and often, we react to that negatively. Out comes the Tasmanian devil when God doesn't play by our rules. Out comes the anger and, and the emotion. And so as, as the irrationality of idolatry is on display here in the riot in Ephesus, so next comes the anger. And, and that's what we see in the next part of the story. There's the riot itself. They go from irrationality to being emotionally unhinged. They're unglued. Look at how crazy they get. Verse 28, when they heard this, they became furious, out-of-control anger. They're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the city was in an an uproar. They they grabbed Paul and uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. They're, They're manhandling people. This is becoming very dangerous very fast. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. People are shouting one thing, some shouting another. People don't even know why they were there. It was just crazy. Some guy wants to get up and speak. They realize he's a Jew and they shout him down. So there's bigotry and racism rampant. This is all the ugliness of the mob scene that comes out. And so this this, this whole city is, is becoming unglued because their idols have been exposed, and now they're, they're reacting emotionally and angrily at that whole thing. It's like the whole city is a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. it <laughs> just scream, you know, two-year-olds throw a tantrum. They lay on the ground, and they back, arch their backs, and they scream and yell, and they just want what they want, and, you know, it's it's. it's it's wild with them. And so you know, what do you do with a two-year-old throwing a tantrum? You just got to let them throw their tantrum. After a while, the, the kid doesn't even know why he originally started screaming in the first place. He doesn't even know why he's there. He's just yelling and screaming. So you just got to let him have it out and don't try to appease them. That's for sure. That's the wrong thing to do. And the craziness of, of this is, of course, highlighted by the city clerk. So the city clerk comes into the story in verse 35. And in some ways, he's the, the interpreter of the story. He Tells us how to, to interpret the actions. He says, he points out to the irrationality in verse 35. He says, Look, everyone knows Artemis is the goddess. She can defend herself. Like, what are you guys in an uproar about, the, about for? And then in verses 36 to 41, he points out the emotional unhingedness of this. He says, Look, there's courts, there's, there's legal process, you guys are out of control. You know, there's no reason for it. Verse 40, we cannot give an account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. It's unreasonable and emotional and unhinged and unglued. But that's what happens when our idols get pushed upon. Sometimes I worry that our whole culture here in America is increasingly becoming like the mob You know, that there is no more civil discourse, that we don't know how to disagree with each other politely and civilly, that all there is is shouting and polarization and politicization. I was just reading in the paper this week about the Hugo Awards. I don't know if you've heard of the Hugo Awards. uh, It's a book award that's given out every year for uh, sci-fi and fantasy literature. And so I I like sci-fi and fantasy stuff and movies and books. And Anyway, so so they give out these Hugo Awards. But something's happened this year is a number of sci-fi and fantasy fans believe that the Hugo Awards have been going to people uh, who are liberal politically. And so all these conservative uh, sci-fi and fantasy guys started a a couple groups to start voting for writers who were openly conservative politically. Then some other people got mad because that was going on, and so they started sort of a counter-movement to vote against the people who were who voting intentionally for the conservative fantasy and sci-fi writers to, to either vote against them or cancel their votes. And so the, people are worried who've run the Hugo Awards for years, they're just worried that the whole thing is becoming ridiculous. That instead of it being about the artistic merits of the of the writing, and whether or not it's good writing, that there's, it's really becoming just yet another platform for this culture war between liberal and conservative, and people are worried about what's going to happen at the Hugo Awards, and... And I, I just, I fear that that's where our culture is going, that we don't know how to have even civil disagreements anymore about things and to treat each other with decency. And It's just become the mob. And it's two mobs and we're shouting and screaming and great is Artemis of the Ephesians shouting each other down. And so when, when our idols get pushed upon, when we follow worldly idols and someone starts messing with them, Often there is an emotional reaction. You can just look at your own heart, you know. When, when do you get emotional? When do you get angry? Oftentimes, if, if you step back and say, why am I getting so upset? You'll, you'll discover that somewhere part of the fueling of that emotion is idolatry. And your idol is getting messed with. You know, I, I, I know my own, my own life, I, I've seen that to be true. Um, I'm really not a, a person who gets outwardly angry very much. I'm pretty calm, you know. I could probably count on one hand, you know, the number of times, you know, I've, I've felt like I've lost my cool publicly with people. I mean, just I'm I'm one of those sort of chill people. I, I get worked up inside, but I, I'm able to just sort of keep a lid on it. So I've always kind of thought I don't have a temper. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Some people wrestle with that. I really don't have a temper. I'm fine, and I always thought that until I had kids. And I realized, I do have a temper. Because kids have a way of messing with your idols. And you you realize, you know, that there have been moments in my home where I have become unglued. You know, where I had never had before. And I'm just like, "Ah, what in the world? Because they mess with my idols. Idols like comfort, you know, and and food. Why why are you eating that? I was going to eat that. You ate that. I've been thinking about eating that all day. Who are you? Why are you eating my food? Who said you could eat that? And you know, I want, I want to go. I want you to go to bed so I can watch my show at nine. And you're not in bed, and now I'm getting angry because I want my show. I have my comforts. I have my routines. Well, you're messing with my routines. You know, or or, or we become angry because. Um, you know p- people don 't listen to us and, and we feel disrespected, or we do all kinds of things to serve our kids, and they don 't seem to appreciate it and, and they should appreciate it i mean that 's part of just learning good manners and things, but sometimes i 'm so upset at that because I have idols in my heart of wanting to be appreciated and affirmed, or i 'm out in public and, and kids do something that 's really you know out of control, and I have an idol in my heart of wanting people to like me and think that i 'm a decent person to hear my kids going bananas. And and suddenly my my anger level's going like this, right? And so what I find find is that oftentimes when these things happen, my kids have done something maybe this bad, but my reaction is this big, right? So yes, they've done some things that need to be addressed, but my reaction isn't here, it's here. And, And when that happens, when I find myself like that, I have to stop and go, okay, where's the differential coming from? it's coming often from my idols. So it's yes, they shouldn't do that. Yes, that is bad. Yes, I should be upset at that. But all this extra is because of stuff that's in my own soul that comes out. And so those, those idols, they're, they're in there. You know, why, why why did I sit there and make that other lady drive? Why did that happen? And, and I, could, I can say, well, it's because... She was breaking the traffic laws, which she was. You know, she, she had right-of-way. You're supposed to take right-of-way. That's why you have right-of-way rules, people. Now I'm lecturing everybody. You need to take your right-of-way because it creates predictability in driving patterns. That's why it's safer to follow driving rules because then you know what other people are going to do instead of people improvising on the spot, you know. So anyway, so, so it's true. What she was doing was dangerous, but I'm like, is that why I was so upset because what she was doing was dangerous? Because I'm like, I do a lot of dangerous things. I ride my mountain bike. I go spearfishing out where there's sharks and fish and things. I mean, I do crazy things. So oh, is it really that I just don't like danger? I don't think that's a problem. You know? I'm like, what's the problem? I think about it, and I go, you know why I get so upset when she was doing that? It's because I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't like people telling me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. And that just gets at me. And I think, why don't I like people telling me what to do? You know, because great is Jeremy of Norwell. That's why. Great is Jeremy of Norwell. You can't tell Jeremy of Norwell what to do. And all of that sin in our hearts comes out. And, and oftentimes when we find ourselves becoming unhinged, if you can have the presence of mind to do it, to step back, take a breath, and to say, what is fueling this emotion? And oftentimes our emotions are like little dashboard lights that let us know what it is under the hood that's going on. And we need to ask the Lord to search our hearts because Christ has called us to peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And, and when I'm not operating in those things, I'm clearly not in the spirit. Have you gotten angry this last week? Were you upset? Were you becoming unglued? Think back in your week. How did it go? Maybe you can't remember past yesterday. Think back. Were you really stirred up this week? Was something really bothering you? Go back and see if you can find out where the idols are and what it is that was contributing to that. What a mess this story is. <laughs> Irrational idolatry, riots, people becoming unglued and violent and crazy and screaming and adults behaving badly. This is just a, an ugly story. It shows the ugliness that lurks in the souls of men. But there is one bright spot in the story, that there's one point in it that's noble and virtuous and encouraging. And, and I think the bright spot in the story is the Apostle Paul. Look at him in verse 30. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. But the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Saul, sent a message begging him not to venture into the theater. You know, he wanted to appear before... Why did Paul want to go into that theater, the amphitheater there in Ephesus? That's crazy! They they wanted his head. They wanted to kill him. And he's like, no, I want to go into the lion's den. I want to go into the fiery furnace. And even his friends are like, we're not letting you go. You're not, you know, this is a friend intervention, Paul. You're not going into that amphitheater. The rulers are sending a message, Paul, don't go in there. We know you want to go in there. Why did Paul want to go in there? The text doesn't say explicitly, but if we were to make a contextual guess based upon everything we've seen about what Paul has done up to this point and based upon his patterns moving forward, as we're going to see in the next few chapters, I think that the reason he wanted to go into theater is pretty obvious. Because he wanted to preach the gospel. He wanted to tell them about Jesus. Paul's like, crowd! (gasps) Gospel opportunity! Like, Paul, they want to kill you because of Jesus. Yes, that's why they need to hear about Jesus. (laughs) What? But this is Paul's mentality. In fact, he says it in the next chapter. We'll look at this next week. Look at chapter 20, verse 24. Here's Paul speaking. This is inside Paul's head. This is his philosophy. Verse 24 of chapter 20, Paul says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I don't care what happens to me. All I care about is that people hear about this true and living Savior. There's such an incredible freedom when we lay down our idols and we lay hold of Jesus Christ. There's such incredible freedom because all of those idols we cling to, they're, they're dead, they're, they're nothings, they're vain, they're empty. When you let go of an idol and instead you lay hold of Jesus, you gotta understand this. You have let go of nothing and you have taken hold of everything. Whatever the idol is that you just feel pulling on your soul, you've got to understand, if you were to even right now put that idol down and reject it, you are letting go of nothing. And when you lay hold of Jesus, you're laying hold of everything. Because Jesus Christ is life. He is our life. And when Christ is our life, we're We're free. Like Martin Luther uh, said in his old hymn, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. We, we can let go of our lives. You know, Paul isn't crazy when he says, I don't care if I die. Like, he's like, that's, that's irrational, Paul. No, it's not irrational if you have Jesus because you have everything in Christ and all the things of this world are nothing and so we're free. We're free to, to let go of possessions. We're free to let go of family and home. We're free to, to let go of our lives, if God were to call us to that. We're, we're free to, to let go of all of our need to control everything, which is irrational. You can't control your life. We think we can, but you can't. And so we we'll let go of that because Christ is my life now and my life is in his hands. I, I can let go of, of trying to control people and circumstances. I can even let go of trying to make you think that I'm a, a great person or that, that I'm all together. You don't have to do that anymore. You say, Jeremy, you know, we realize you've got some flaws. I mean, we thought you were a pastor and you're perfect, but we realize you're not. And I can now say to you, like, actually, you don't even know the tip of the iceberg. I'm far worse than you can possibly know, you know, because of the sin in my heart. And, but it doesn't matter because Christ has forgiven me. I belong to Christ. And so there's a freedom to live completely for the Lord when we lay down those worthless idols, things that are good in and of themselves, perhaps, but were never meant to bear the weight of ultimate worship and devotion. So we lay them down, and we're free as Christians, and we're free to push forward, even toward people who are very hostile to the gospel. We're not worried. It's okay. And even if you reject me, and even if you want to kill me, it doesn't matter, because you need Christ. Even if I have to embody that through suffering, you need the gospel. As we look at the story of Paul here going into that theater, wanting to go into the theater, and we see the crowds, it's an echo, isn't it? It it sounds like an echo of our Lord Jesus Christ who came for us, and he faced the crowds. Jesus faced angry crowds too, but it wasn't because he, he trampled on or messed up their worship of Artemis for Jesus he he messed up their legalism and their worship of the law and their worship of the temple in Jerusalem and and, and they couldn't see that he was the life. And Jesus was saying to his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, he was saying to them, look, this temple can't save you. The law can't save you. The, the traditions of Moses can't save you. By, by trying to be a better Jew and a good person, you can't be saved. You need something else. What do we need, Jesus? You need me, he would say. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and that trampled on their gods, that they had created their idolatry of the law of God itself. Their worship of the law in the temple. And Jesus said, No, I am the temple. Tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again, he said. And so they shouted at him. They didn't shout, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They shouted, Crucify, crucify. And unlike Paul, who got held back, God the Father pushed his son forward. And he went and he he bore up. He was torn apart by the Roman soldiers. And they crucified him. And he did it to save the people who were crucifying him. This is the gospel. That Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. By doing the thing that no idol could ever do. Which is to save me from my sins. Nobody can change my heart except my Savior Jesus. So it is Christ who is life. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us lay down our idols. I don't know what they are. They keep creeping in. I keep laying them down and I keep grabbing them again. I'm like Bilbo. I can't drop the ring. I keep picking it up. And let us make Christ Lord of our hearts. May may our our hearts treasure Christ more than anything else. And if you're here today and you've never worshipped Christ, I would just encourage you. Just look at the things you do worship. Don't think that you're just an agnostic or a secularist and you have no religion. That's baloney. Everyone has a religion. Yours may not look like something you do in church on a Sunday morning, but everyone has a religion. Everyone has a belief. Everyone has things they trust in and put their hope in. What is yours? Could it be that it's worthless? Could it be that there is a living Savior who came for you? May we all be able to say with Paul, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for this congregation and for myself that you would cause our hearts to treasure you above all else. O Lord Jesus, send the Holy Spirit to us right now May the Holy Spirit grab hold of the curtain and pull back the idols that are hidden beneath it and show us, Lord, where those idols are. O oh, Lord, put your finger on our idolatry. And God, help us to be quick to repent. Help us to be quick to cast our idols out. O oh, Lord, may we treasure Jesus Christ above all else. May he be uppermost in our affections. And Lord Jesus, I pray that if there is anyone here today who doesn't yet know you, who's still thinking that that this world has the answers, God, I just pray that that they would be exposed as well and they may be free to know the living Savior, not a dead idol, but a living God. And Lord, may they know Jesus. May they come to put their faith in him. We pray all this in his name, amen.